everybody, by popular listener demand, a Stuff Mom Never Told You store is now live. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.Spreadshirt.com and check out all of the Stuff Mom Never Told You t-shirts, tote bags, pins, coffee mugs, cell phone cases, even sweatshirts that you can pick up for yourself or maybe even a fellow Stuff Mom Never Told You fan this holiday season. And now through December 2nd, you can also take advantage of the Black Friday sale happening where you can get free standard shipping with the purchase of two or more products with the promo code HOLIDAY. So don't wait. Head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.Spreadshirt.com and get your sminty swag on. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about a health issue uh, requested by a number of listeners that a lot of listeners probably have not heard of before. And frankly, I was not aware of this either before we started researching. Mm -hmm. And that is uterine fibroids. Yeah, I actually uh, am ashamed to say that I did not know about this either until a former coworker of mine told me about her experience with fibroids and said, well, you know, Caroline, you should do a podcast on this because it affects so many women. And a lot of the women it affects are women who haven't had children. And so to my former coworker and to our listeners out there who were hoping to learn more about this, this is for you. We're going to tell you today about uterine fibroids a.k.a. Lyomyomas, which just makes me think of Lego My Ego, not to reduce that to a catchphrase. But Lyomyoma literally means growth of smooth muscles. So fibroids are non-cancerous, very important, non-cancerous growths in the uterus that typically appear during a woman's childbearing years. And it bears repeating these are non-cancerous growths in most cases. Your chances of developing a cancerous fibroid are super small. They're somewhere between 1 in 400 and 1 in 1,000 cases. And just having a fibroid or fibroids plural does not increase your risk or your chances of developing cancer. And they develop from uterine tissue when a cell divides repeatedly, which then forms this firm mass. And the mass can be so small that it's undetectable to the eye, but it also can grow large enough in some cases that it distorts the size of the uterus. In fact, there are some women with fibroids so large that it distends their stomach. Right. And so let's talk about how common this actually is and the symptoms that you might experience, because I think when we tell you a little bit about these issues, you'll understand why maybe more people don't know about it or don't know whether they have it. And how we should know about it. My mind is blown that I I didn't know about this. I know. This is exactly another issue like endometriosis, where it's so common for so many women out there, and so many women do go through the pain of fibroids, but not a lot of people know about it. So estimates as to how common fibroids are range from about 20% of women up to about 75%. So that's like a, that's a huge window of how many women potentially suffer from fibroids. But many of these women are unaware that they have them because they don't have symptoms or 
they mistake their symptoms for something else. And it's easy to see why you might not get diagnosed because the symptoms aren't exactly fibroid specific. Yeah, this totally reminded me, too, of our episode on polycystic ovarian syndrome, where you have all sorts of symptoms that could be anything. So a lot of women go through a number of uh, medical exams before they get an actual diagnosis. So these symptoms can include things like heavy or prolonged periods, pelvic pressure or pain, frequent urination, difficulty emptying your bladder, constipation, backache, or leg pains. Um, it can also cause acute pain, which is caused when a fibroid outgrows its blood supply, then it dies, and then bits and pieces from the dying fibroid can make their way into surrounding tissue. And another thing that causes acute pain uh, is something that uh, really gave me pause when I was reading these sources, but... It's the issue of when a fibroid that is growing from a type of stalk can end up twisted, thereby cutting off the blood supply. And so that leads to very acute pain as well. So, again, just to keep in mind, because I had to keep reminding myself of this as we were reading about fibroids, is that they are very common most of the time. They come with no symptoms mm-hmm. whatsoever. This is more talking about what happens when they do enlarge or they grow in such a way that do lead to very painful symptoms. Um, so there are different kinds of uterine fibroids as well. There are three main classifications and your symptoms will depend on the type. So you have submucosal fibroids, which grow into the inner cavity of the uterus, and these are likelier to cause prolonged heavy periods. Then you have subserosal fibroids, which project to the outside of the uterus, and these are likelier to cause urinary symptoms because they compress on your bladder, and also bulging from the back of the uterus compress on your rectum, causing a pressure sensation, or on your spinal nerves, causing backache. Yeah, and of course, I feel like I've said this on every health episode we've ever done that I automatically assume I have whatever it is that we're talking about. And so, of course, my back was killing me yesterday, and it's still kind of hurting today. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, I have subserosal. Oh, no, wait, I went to the gym for the first time in forever, and my back is killing me. Okay. But so the third and final type is intramural fibroids, which grow in the uterine wall itself and can distort the shape of the uterus and cause prolonged heavy periods and pain and pressure sensations. So there's no winning. Thanks a lot, fibroids. Thanks a lot, body. Jeez. (laughs) And we've been treating these fibroids for a long time, even though today doctors are still kind of scratching their heads about them. Um, in 1809, President Lincoln's cousin, Jane Todd Crawford, became the first person to undergo surgery to remove a fibroid in a procedure called a laparotomy, which involves a large cut through the abdominal wall. And it wasn't necessarily just to remove a fibroid, um, because at this time, doctors probably weren't entirely sure what was wrong with Jane Todd Crawford? Yeah, I mean, she had some some distension of the stomach and everything like that. And they, they had some theories about what was wrong with her. And they went in and they removed this thing. And it was a fibroid. It, it turns out it was a fibroid. Uh, and in 1840, we have the first successful myomectomy, which is a surgery for fibroids whose goal is just to remove the masses themselves and leave the uterus intact. And this surgery was specifically to remove fibroids. It wasn't just exploratory. 
And it's interesting that after the 1850s, this procedure was largely abandoned. There were some safety issues, some health issues. Uh, it was picked up again in 1922 when a British surgeon actually improved methods. So it became another option again. And today, the most common surgery used to treat fibroids is a hysterectomy, which is the full removal of the uterus. And it's the only proven permanent solution for uterine fibroids. And some women will choose to also have their ovaries removed. A lot of women will choose to keep them because if you also remove the ovaries, as you would imagine, it immediately induces menopause. Right. And so myomectomy is still a surgical option today. And that's, like we said, removing just the growth itself, not the entire uterus. And luckily, it can actually be performed as a laparoscopic or minimally invasive procedure today. It doesn't have to be the radical opening of the entire abdominal cavity. And speaking of minimally invasive options, women do have some things open to them uh, to choose from. Things like injecting small particles into the arteries that supply blood to the uterus, which ends up cutting off blood flow to the fibroids as well. You can also use an electric current or a laser to destroy them, which in my mind, I'm like, why wouldn't you just do that all the time? But I'm obviously there are other issues. Um And then there's the very controversial option of power morselation, which involves using a very tiny rotating power blade to slice uterine growths into strips that can be removed through a small incision. And that doesn't sound controversial. That seems like, okay, cool, advancements in science. However, it may cause small benign tumors to form in the abdominal cavity or in rare cases when the fibroid actually is cancerous, to spread cancer cells. Yeah, because essentially when they're removing those strips, they might sometimes leave stuff behind, which can migrate. And there was a very recent case where um, a woman underwent this surgery and she developed stage four cancer because of that. And so power morselation is now uh, a procedure very much under review. There are also some medications out there to temporarily treat Fibroids, uh, you have gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists, of course, you know. Of course. This blocks the production of estrogen and progesterone and it stops menstruation, thereby shrinking the fibroids and improving anemia. Anemia is something uh, commonly associated with this. Um, then there's also the Mirena, which is the progestin releasing uh, intrauterine device or IUD and it can also relieve heavy bleeding associated with fibroids. But it doesn't shrink the actual fibroids. And in a fascinating twist, mifepristone, a.k.a. RU486, can also shrink fibroids. And if it's ringing a bell in your brain, that's because mifepristone is an abortifacient. It's often referred to as the abortion pill because it's a drug used to end pregnancies. And it can shrink those fibroids, like I said, but only in postmenopausal women. And once you stop taking it, the fibroids grow back. It's so interesting. So very, very interesting and scary. It's distressing. Yeah, and and you know, we've listed a whole bunch of treatments basically for the express purpose of illustrating that while yes, there are a ton of options out there, they're all sort of uh leading us to what we're about to talk about, which is that even though we've known about fibroids for a long time, we're still not exactly sure the best way to treat them, nor are we exactly sure the exact cause. And so we're going to talk way more about that when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. 
we left off, we were talking about all of these different treatment options, the only one of which that's proven to be permanent is a hysterectomy, which is a pretty aggressive surgery. I mean, it's having your uterus and possibly your ovaries as well removed. Um, But the thing that left both Caroline and me saying, what, is the fact that we've known about them for a long time. And yet even today, doctors aren't really sure what causes it. And I feel like this is a common refrain through so many of the women's health related podcasts that we've done. I mean, and when we say we've known about them for a long time, we're talking about going back to ancient Greece uh, when Hippocrates called them uterine stones. And then in the second century, Greek physician Galen referred to them as scleromas. Uh, and more recently in the 19th century, in 1854, German doctor Rudolf Virchow introduced the term myoma, which means a benign tumor of muscular tissue, after demonstrating that those fibroid masses were composed from smooth muscles. And speaking of fibroids, it wasn't until 1860 that the term fibroid was actually introduced by Baron Karl von Rokotansky. Uh, Carl, I just like that. Carl. I like Dr. that his Carl. name is, is Dr. Carl. Um, but so, despite the fact that even Hippocrates was talking about these things, nobody knows exactly why they happen. They do know that there are two main factors at play. One, hormones. Two, genetics. And so let's look at some of these interesting hormonal clues. Yeah, and of course the hormones... Uh, implicated in this are estrogen and progesterone. Right. As with everything. Is it everything, Carol? I think it's everything. I think that some days. Um, so the hormonal clues are the fact that they do tend to grow rapidly during pregnancy when hormone levels are running high. But the more pregnancies a woman has, the lower her risk. The risk is also lower for women who take oral contraceptives and they tend to shrink when you take anti-hormone medicine. Uh, they actually stop growing and shrink once you hit menopause. Hmm. Yeah, and there's also a link where uh, women who get their periods at a young age also appear to be at a higher risk. And there's a higher incidence among women whose mothers took DES, which is a synthetic estrogen and endocrine disruptor, uh, during their pregnancy. And the link between in utero DES exposure and early onset fibroids is actually particularly pronounced among African-American women. And there are other factors as well. A diet has been uh, talked about, uh, especially diets high in red meat and low in green veggies and fruit. So people eat your veggies. Another reason to do that. Uh, Drinking alcohol and also age because uh, it's more common as we age, especially once we hit our 30s and 40s. And obesity is also a big risk factor. It actually amplifies your risk two to three times higher um, if you are obese. But the biggest risk factor that we need to talk about that a lot of doctors are looking into is this very strong connection between uterine fibroids and African-American women. They disproportionately affect black women, and they're more likely to experience symptoms longer before they seek help, which could be contributed to a number of different factors. But just for instance, 42% of women waited over four years to go to the doctor and seek out a diagnosis, which, again, who knows how many doctor visits that takes. Right, exactly. And fibroids also tend to strike African-American women earlier. On average, it hits in their late 20s as opposed to their 30s, 
So it's more likely to impact their childbearing plans, especially if it took them a long time to get a diagnosis. And then there was a 2013 survey in the Journal of Women's Health that found that black women were significantly more likely to have severe symptoms like heavier prolonged periods, cramping and anemia. They were more likely to report that fibroids interfered with physical activities and relationships. They were also more likely to miss work for fibroid related reasons and more likely to seek out health information about fibroids, but then report feeling like they couldn't find good answers. 44% of these women said that they visited two or more specialists before doctors detected fibroids. And the incidence and relative risk rate for uterine fibroids, according to the study, was three times greater for black women. And that was compared to... Uh, their study population of white women who had the same levels of education, employment status, and overall health status. So all other factors being equal, you still have this much, much higher risk. And on top of that, they are 2.4 times likelier to have a hysterectomy as a result and 6.8 times likelier to have a myomectomy, which is the procedure where they go in to remove the fibroid, but they leave the uterus intact. And we're going to hit more on the whole, the significance of those surgery numbers in just a second. But what I thought was very interesting was this 2011 study in the American Journal of Epidemiology linking hair relaxing chemicals with fibroids. Uh, they write that these chemicals are used by millions of black women, possibly exposing them to various chemicals through scalp lesions and burns. And they found that the instances of fibroids were linked to higher reports of frequency and duration of use and number of burns. But the risk was not related to age at first use or the type of formula. And that's a huge deal. The blogosphere kind of exploded around this time talking about the fact that like something that so many African-American women use as part of a beauty routine could potentially have horrific health effects. And when we talk about the the broader significance of this condition and its treatment and, and the need for more attention to it, just even having women like us being aware that this is something that could happen, that, that could very well be existing in our bodies right now, um, is the fact that fibroids are the biggest indication for women in the U.S. to get hysterectomies, which is a major surgical procedure that has equally major life and economic effects, not to mention all of the different symptoms and how that pain and discomfort um, and bleeding or anemia can lead to uh, just difficult lifestyle hindrances of affecting relationships and missed work or school, whatever it might be. Right. And so if we look at the numbers, fibroids lead to 200,000 hysterectomies in the United States each year, not to mention 30,000 myomectomies each year. And granted, the time spent healing is reduced if you go for a minimally invasive type of hysterectomy or myomectomy. But even so, we need to talk about the very real costs of that many women experiencing that big of a surgery every year. There is a 2012 study published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which adjusted up the previously reported cost for fibroids to $5.9 to $34.4 billion annually in the United States. And that includes not only the medical costs, but also the cost of lost work productivity, 
attributable to uterine fibroids. And again, going back to African-American women, they are 77% likelier to miss work because of this health condition. And for an even further cost breakdown from that study, um, the estimated annual direct costs, that includes things like surgery, hospital admissions, outpatient visits, and medications, they put it between four point one and nine point four billion dollars. So no chump change, right? Yeah. And in terms of that whole lost work productivity thing, Kristen's absolutely right that African American women are seventy seven percent more likely to miss work. Um, and in general, when you look at the numbers, uh, that survey found that more than one quarter of women report lost work days, and more than one fifth reported actual concerns about losing their job due to the whole situation stemming from uterine fibroids. Um, and so the estimated lost work hour costs is between one and a half and 17.2 billion. And of course, the estimated cost of obstetric outcomes that are attributed to those fibroid tumors fall between 238 million and 7.7 billion dollars. That's a lot of lost money and lost time. Yeah. And I mean, in no way, like none of the statistics that we cited throughout this podcast minimize the importance of knowing about this very real health issue. And it's startling to me that it is isn't talked about very much at all. Um, I feel like it's indicative of a lot of issues with women's health in mm-hmm. general, where there are a lot of things that we usually aren't aware of in terms of how our bodies work and can work. And again, in a lot of these situations, if you have fibroids, uterine fibroids, you don't even know. And that's totally fine. This isn't, ladies, go to your doctors right now and find out if you have fibroids. Half the time, it's totally fine. But they can grow into these tumors, which can cause all of these symptoms. And in much less likely circumstances, they can become cancerous. Right. And so this definitely ties in issues of doctors not listening to women, of women having to spend so much time and money going from doctor to doctor to seek out a diagnosis of what's wrong with me. I'm in this pain or I'm having these issues with my period. And maybe not even knowing that those kinds of symptoms are worth a doctor visit Mm -hmm. or maybe not being able to afford or to have insurance to be able to go to a doctor or not being able to take time off work. I mean, there's so many different factors that can go into this very real health care issue. Um, but I hope that this was a PSA for listeners of at least, you know, validating the health issues of women out there who have had to deal with uterine fibroids and also news for listeners who might not have been aware of this condition of, hey, if these kinds of symptoms start cropping up, this could be something to talk to your doctor or nurse practitioner about. So I have a feeling that there are listeners whom this is very much resonating with. And we want to hear from you. Were you able, have you been able to get treatment for it? Um, what has been your experience when it comes to this? Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. So I've got a letter here from Rosie about our episode on domestic violence. And she writes... I want to share with you some constructive work that's taking place in Australia in terms of supporting victims of domestic violence. 
The trade union movement spearheaded by my union, the Victorian branch of the Australian Services Union, has been pushing to get a special category of leave included in employment agreements. This domestic violence leave is a special category of paid leave to allow victims of domestic violence time to attend court and other appointments, move houses, or other urgent requirements that being a victim of domestic violence may cause. This additional category of leave allows people to not have to use their holiday time on decidedly unpleasant tasks like getting a restraining order. It also keeps employers mindful that their employees have lives outside the office that can interrupt or impact their work. The first employment agreement to include this category of leave was negotiated by a city council in 2011. I think while it's absolutely imperative to work hard on preventing domestic violence, the sad fact is that it's an ongoing issue, and I don't see that changing any time. For all of the pledges, fundraising, and education programs about not committing violent acts, we as a society also need to find ways to support the people who are affected by this. Money issues and stability are often reasons that women will not leave an abusive partner. For workplaces to be supportive of women who are trying to leave abusive relationships, additional leave is an excellent way to empower women to be able to make the choices they want to make. The Australian Council of Trade Unions is lodging a claim at the Fair Work Commission to secure 10 days paid domestic leave as a minimum entitlement for all employees. As a unionist and a feminist, I'm very proud to be part of a movement that is doing something to support people in abusive relationships and allow them to get things done so they can continue to live their lives. So thanks so much, Rosie, for letting us know about that very important uh, work that the Council of Trade Unions is doing. Okay, I have a letter here from Jenny. Uh, She says, I worked in the domestic violence field for five years before I returned to school to get my master's degree in social work. During that time, I accompanied survivors to court and at the hospital during forensic exams. I was often the first and last person they saw as they attempted to leave situations of intimate partner violence. I say intimate partner rather than domestic because it addresses the fact that 9.4% of high school students report being hit, slapped, or physically hurt on purpose by their boyfriend or girlfriend in the 12 months prior to the survey. And she cites the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention 2011 Youth Risk Behavior Survey. Unfortunately, many states, including Kentucky where I practice, do not offer legal protection to people in dating relationships, which makes teens particularly vulnerable. And then she has a couple other things that she says she wants to address. She says, well, you addressed how there are many types of domestic violence. You forgot two types that strongly contribute to the difficulty of leaving an abusive relationship, economic abuse and reproductive abuse. Economic abuse involves withholding money, ensuring that no property or credit cards are in the victim's name or refusing to allow the victim to work. Reproductive abuse involves replacing or sabotaging birth control, forcing the partner to obtain an abortion or preventing her from getting one or lying about the methods of birth control. Both of these categories can affect straight and gay couples differently. One category people forget about is victims of domestic violence who are disabled. Women with disabilities are more likely to experience domestic violence and sexual assault than non-disabled women simply due to the fact that women with disabilities have particular vulnerabilities that non-disabled women do not have such as needing assistance with self-care and daily living activities and requiring medical assistance. Research from Michael Johnson, who I believe you quoted at one point, differentiates intimate terrorism from situational couple violence. In his research, he separates the cycle of violence that includes planning for future violence from violence between couples that is frequently mutual and more often than not fueled by drug and or alcohol abuse, economic difficulties, and youth. 
It is the latter group of offenders who are most frequently successful in batterers' treatment programs, as most programs teach people alternative conflict resolution skills. People who fit the category of intimate terrorists will use treatment groups to learn new ways of concealing or getting away with violence. They may also use the participation in the group as further ammunition to gaslight their partners. I can't be abusive. I'm in a group. You should see the other guys. And Jenny goes on to say that she hopes that more attention is brought to domestic violence through the promotion of Domestic Violence Month in October every year. And so, Jenny, I just want to thank you so much for all of your incredible points. And thanks to everybody who's written into us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And I just want to put a word out there. Speaking of uh, domestic violence, since we just read a couple of letters about it, um, there is a new-ish now documentary called Private Violence um, produced by HBO um, that is very difficult to watch but very much worth watching to learn more about this issue, particularly in the U.S. And if you want to learn more about it, go to Private Violence. Um, And if you want to learn more about us, you can find all of our social media links as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links to all of our sources so you can read along with us over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 